These stories of the kings lend themselves to isolated lessons, but I am going to present them in chronological order. I'm not going to do a detailed history of the kings, but essentially snapshots. So a particular king here and then later uh, another king. Um, So that if you hear them, you'll get in snapshots a picture of what happens in the divided kingdom over the years as you move towards the last good king, Josiah, and the coming of the captivity in Babylon. But the lessons are going to be individual. So why look at the lives of the kings? What good could we have from that? Okay, well, certain things to keep in mind. In, for, in general, remember that all Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that applies to all of Scripture. <coughs> and, <coughs> you know, there's some words in there that you know, jump out at us as perhaps unpleasant, reproof, correction. We also remember Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. And how is it described? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A two-edged sword does not sound very pleasant to have one wielded upon oneself, but it is for our good. So any part of Scripture is good for this sort of thing. But we also have some more particular reasons. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is addressing the Corinthians with regard to those who fell in the wilderness, says that these things were written down for our instruction. Okay, and what end? Back earlier in the chapter, he said these things took place, so not only were they recorded, but they took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, so this applies to those who fell in the wilderness, so those during the time of the Exodus, during those 40 years, but it applies more generally as well, that we can learn from other parts of Scripture and learn not to desire evil as those. And also, look at good examples. See good examples. We will have good examples put before us as we, we go through these over the however much time it takes. Um, So we have cautionary stories, and we also have encouraging examples. But I imagine also in our minds, as we think about kings, that the thought can come into our mind exactly, how is my life like that of a king? Okay, I'm, I'm just this guy, and I'm not leading a nation. I'm not in a position of great power what sort of what sort of you know, common ground do I have with a king does that objection come to anybody's mind well if it does or if you know somebody for whom it does <clears throat> think about it this way <clears throat> the difference is really more of a difference of degree rather than kind 
Okay? All of us affect others around us. Okay? Kings are in a particular position to where what they do has effects on a large number of people. A whole nation is affected by the good decisions or the bad decisions of a king. So, in, in essence, what we can see, they're still made of the same stuff that we are. Okay? They're still human beings, have a nature like ours. They're going to be tempted in similar ways to how we're tempted. But when they fail, they fail, as we would say, royally. Right? And that means the effects are huge. Okay, so what we can get from the kings is to see what our sort of mistakes look like magnified. Okay, we may not change the course of an entire nation for generations to come, but we can cause pain to our children, we can cause pain to our parents, our co workers, our church family. And we can see those sort of things magnified in the lives of the kings. So I think that that's some of the good that we can have from that. So enough apologetic about why I want to go through this series. Where where we're going to start is 1 Kings 12. And I'm going to kind of jump around a bit. Uh, So I am going to read some passages, but I'm mainly going to relate the story to you. So in 1 Kings 12, we meet a man, and he is at a real cusp. He has been given a scepter, and it is a weighty scepter. Two men have held it before him, his father, his grandfather, Solomon and David. And now stands this man Rehoboam, and he is to be king. The two men before him were great and were men of renown, hardly perfect, but established the kingdom, and then the next one ruled over it during some of its most glorious and peaceful years before he departed um, and sinned greatly in later years, although I do believe he repented. But so he's at the beginning of his kingship and he is immediately faced with a crisis. And the crisis is he goes, he's gone to Shechem to be made king, but a demand has been made of him. Stands a man in front of him, opposing him, makes a request, <coughs> says, your father made our, <clears throat> um, made our lives very burdensome. Um, <clears throat> the specific, your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which, we put on, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So... Immediately, right out of the gate, he has to make a decision. How am I going to answer these people? <clears throat> so, he goes to advisors. Okay, and that 
sounds like a very good thing. He wants to get advice. Many counselors, there's wisdom, and so he goes to counselors. And he goes to some counselors <coughs> that, are, that have some age on them, and they were counselors during the time of Solomon. And their advice is, be a servant to these people. Answer them softly, and they will be yours forever. So these, these say, if you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. I take it that Solomon did actually have conscripted labor from the, at least from the tribes of Joseph. That appears to have started as early as the building of the temple. They weren't technically slaves because the scriptures also say he did not enslave any of his people. But there did seem to be conscripted labor and there was resentment for that. And there seemed to be, um, I take it, um, some, some real and honest and justifiable complaint here. Here's the key verse. So he's gone to advisors. He's looked for he's looked for input, but it says in verse eight of chapter twelve, but he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him. It does not say he wanted to get a second opinion. I could get a second opinion from a doctor. Well, he could be right. But let me see what somebody else has to say. It says already from this point, he forsook their advice. Now, I don't know the extent to which Rehoboam already had his mind made up. But something about their advice didn't appeal to him. So he knew, I'm not going to do that. Let's see what somebody else has to say. Let's see what my buddies have to say. The people I've grown up with. So he goes to his peer group. He goes to younger people. What counsel would you give in this situation? Maybe they'll get the right answer. <clears throat> well, here's what they say. Thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, your father made our yoke heavy, now make it lighter for us. You shall speak to them, my little finger is thicker than your father's loin, my father's loins. As my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. <clears throat> so he goes with that. Okay, so in, <clears throat> think about this when going for counsel. Okay, you actually have to listen. If you've already got your mind made up, and I'm not sure that's the case here, but certainly I know this heart, that I can have my mind made up, but as symbol for, you know, really debating things, let's get some other advice. I already know what I'm going to do, but I'll go and get some more advice. Don't behave that way. Actually be teachable. And Rehoboam does not seem teachable. 
So he returns after the three days, goes, goes to these people, gives them that answer, and what do you think happens? You know, a soft answer, it turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When all Israel saw the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. We're out of here. So Israel departed to their tents. Now, Rehoboam doesn't seem to really recognize exactly what's happened here. He sends Adam, who is over the forced labor, up to the north. Okay, so the whole complaint is our yoke's been heavy. And Rehoboam, his response now that they've said, we are no longer under you, is to send the man who's over the forced labor. How well is that going to work? They stone him to death. And Rehoboam has to flee. Flees in his chariot. So, let's think about this. Um, Do, uh, here's something I'd like to open up for anyone to, um, to comment. How do we do the same thing that Rehoboam has done? How do we answer harshly? How do we make a bad situation worse? How do we pretend that we'd like advice when we really are stubbornly have our minds made up? Any other biblical examples of that or any examples that you've seen? Does anybody want to share any? Any thoughts? You haven't seen situations where people answer in such a way that it exacerbates things. In the Bible, or like when I in in the Bible, other Bible stories, or if you've seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, and that again seems small with regard to what the, what Rehoboam's done now is he's been the instrument by which the kingdom has been split in two. Okay, there were other reasons which we'll look at in just a minute, but he's been the instrument. Okay, that doesn't happen with you or with me when we don't answer our wives as we should, but it causes you know the temperature in the room to change, right? And the kids can sense that, and you know, so I don't. D- Daniel has this sort of shy smile on his face. <laughs> How about already having our minds made up, but still pretending to get advice? Yeah. I've, I've seen examples of that. Um, 
where you know, somebody somebody told me, yes, so-and-so came to me wanting my advice, but I knew he wasn't interested in advice. He was interested in me seconding his opinion. That's really not the way we should do things. But it's very, very easy for us fallen people to do that. <coughs> So Rehoboam has answered harshly. He's gone after what tickled his ears. The kingdom is now in two parts. He goes to make repair of that. In verse 21, Now when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, because he was going to have another tribe, 180,000 men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So I'm just going to make this happen. And then what happens next is significant and is to Rehoboam's credit. Word of God came to Shemaiah, the Shemaiah, sorry, Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you must not go and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So... They listened to the word of the Lord and returned, went their way according to the word of the Lord. So a rebuke was given, and they relented and did not go to war. When we make mistakes, we should repent and look to repent as quickly as possible. And so it's not pursued. What about his adversary? There was the man who stood in front of him, whose name rhymes with his, who was making the complaint. His name is Jeroboam. He's now set up to be king of the northern kingdom. What's his story? And what sort of man is he? Well, let's look at that. (coughs) Jeroboam is an Ephraimite, and we actually met him in the previous chapter. So, 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon had noted him. He was an Ephraimite, he was a man of valor, and he was noted as being industrious. And Solomon put him over, can you guess? the forced labor of the house of Joseph. One day, he's out on the road in a field and encounters a man of Shiloh named Ahijah, who is a prophet. And what happens there is very significant in what the prophet says to him, listen to very closely. Because each word is important. He has a cloak on him, and he tears it up. The prophet has his own cloak. He tears it up, and he says to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 
ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem. The city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Again, pay attention to every word. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. They have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and ordinances as his father David did. So Solomon, through the multitude of wives that he had, many of whom were foreign women, He was not supposed to have any more than one wife, but he certainly wasn't supposed to marry from those outside of the people of God, had introduced idol worship. So this is happening. Rehoboam's the instrument, but the cause is what happened back in the time of Solomon. Nevertheless, the prophet's words we return to, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. So it's not going to happen right now. Solomon's still king. It's going to happen with the next king, who ends up being Rehoboam. that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I think this is now twice he's emphasized the importance of Jerusalem and that he's put his name there. I will take you, speaking to Jeroboam, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire. You shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you. Then I will be with you. I lost my prize. And build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Or in the ESV, not forever. Okay, is it God's desire that they always be split? This is one people. And the recurring theme throughout later prophets is the adjoining of the kingdom. So he said, I'm going to make you king. Walk in the way that David did. And twice he's mentioned, Jerusalem is the place where I put my name. So Jeroboam now, fast forward, he, uh, Solomon hears of this, and Solomon tries to kill him. So he flees to Egypt until Solomon has passed away. And then they call him back, the northern tribes do, to lead them in this complaint against 
Rehoboam, and so he's the person who's standing in front of Rehoboam, and now with Rehoboam's disastrous answer, he stands as king, as was prophesied of the ten northern tribes. What is he going to do? Well, let's find out. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. Seems reasonable. And he went out from there and bent Penuel. Seems reasonable. Crucial verse. Verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to the Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Okay, that's what he says in his heart. What has God promised? What did God promise him through Ahijah? That he would rule. And he emphasized, Jerusalem's where I put my name. This is simple distrust of God's promise. Think how different this is than David. Okay, David was anointed and then sometime later finds himself on the run trying to flee this madman named Saul. And Saul, you know, <clears throat> Saul's this guy who always seems to have a spear in his hand. And he's trying to kill David. David will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He knows he's going to be king. It's been promised to him. But he is not going to take it into his hands to make sure that it happens despite the fact that he has opportunity on at least two occasions, and he has lots of people who are whispering in his ear, why don't you go ahead and kill him? The Lord's, look, the Lord's delivered him into your hands, but he knows this is something that he is not to do. He knows it wouldn't be good for his own position. A king now ruling who killed the previous one, that establishes a very bad precedent. So see how David behaved with regard to Saul, who was really a man who wanted to kill him. Look at Jeroboam. Because of a theoretical possibility that the people might go back, you know, every year they're going to go back to Jerusalem, they're going to worship, eh, their hearts are going to turn back towards Rehoboam, and then they're going to want to kill me. Distrust. Simple distrust of God's promises. That's what we see here. So, what is he going to do? Okay. Unlike David, he wants to engineer this to make sure it works. Okay, We can oftentimes do that, and we'll, we'll try to think of some other examples here in just a few minutes. So he goes to advisors also. 
Okay? He wants to get some advice. So he gets counsel. It says, <clears throat> So the king consulted and made two golden calves. Two golden calves, and he said to them, it, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay? Now, of course, this has plenty of precedent. It has precedent with those who fell in the, in the wilderness. This has happened before. And it starts off more as a violation of the second commandment than the first. Okay? God said... Don't make images. That is not how I've told you to worship me. A truth about God is being remembered. They were brought up out of Egypt by God. They were told not to worship him in this fashion. But a violation of the second commandment will very quickly turn in to a violation of the first commandment where we're actually worshiping a different God. Not only that, he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Bethel and Dan. Now, if you go back and read the end of the book of Judges, you'll see that idolatry was established in the days before there was a king. And one is in the hill country of Ephraim and the other is at Dan. So there's lots of precedent for this. Now, they didn't have to just invent this out of our heads. They've seen it before. Two golden calves, and here are some good places at the very, very north and at the very, very south. From Bethel, I think, you can see the Mount of Olives. It's that close to Jerusalem. But he's saying, it's too much for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. Way too big of a trip for you. Flattery, smooth words. That's what we have here. He wants to make it sound like he's doing them a favor. I'm going to make it easier for you. It, 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 this is way too troublesome. His motive is entirely different. His motive is not to make things easy for his people. His motive is self-preservation. Idolatry just happened to be the convenient way to establish that. But it'll take on a life of its own. What's going to happen because of what Jeroboam does? You're not going to have a single king in the northern kingdom that the scripture judges as good. Not a single one. In the south, you're going to have isolated good kings that are like a breath of fresh air in a very depressing history. In the north, uniformly bad. Some of them, not as bad as others. Some of them roll back the idolatry just a little bit. But none of them are going to roll back what Jeroboam does in the worship of these calves. None of them will do that. They might get worse, but they're not going to get better. There's going to be <clears throat> idolatry throughout the northern kingdom. It's now established, and there's going to be constant regime change. 
There's no continuing dynasty that's going to happen. You're going to have kings that rule for a matter of days rather than years. That is a very bad situation to live under. That's the course that Jeroboam has set for the northern kingdom. Why did he set it on that? Sinful distrust of the Lord and a desire at all costs to preserve himself. So we think of the words of Jesus, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Here's a man who's trying to save his life, and we're going to hear he's going to lose it. How can we do this to ourselves? How can we do this to our family? How can we do this? How can we do this self-preservation and um, have that as our motive to lead us into sin? Can Can we think of any other biblical examples? or any examples that you've seen. Can you think of other examples of this sort of action? I don't trust what God said. I've got to make this happen on my own. I've got to preserve. Abraham and Hagar... Okay. Abraham and Hagar. Abraham and Jacob both lot about their wives. Right. They were acting out of fear. Yep. So Isaac and Abraham both uh, both lie <laughs> to <coughs> they throw their wives under the bus, so to speak, um, to preserve themselves. <coughs> Big. <coughs> Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> the people are getting restless. <clears throat> I know I'm supposed to wait, but I'm going to do it anyway. How about this one? If we don't get rid of this guy, the Romans are going to take away our nation and our place. Here we are. We represent the one true God. And if Jesus keeps doing what he's doing and people continue to follow him, we're going to lose our nation and our place. They are trying to preserve those things. What happened to the nation? 70 A.D. What happened to their place? They wanted to save their lives. They lose it. And we can do this on a small scale, too. I don't see any way out, out of this situation. I've just got to cheat a little bit in this way in order to make it through. And time comes when the family is exposed to all sorts of hardship because we would not trust God but decided we have to make this work rather than rely on God that he will not let us go without bread. So, the immediate consequences. 
he has to invent a priesthood. And so he does. And this had happened way back in the time of the judges, same place, similar sort of thing, an invented priesthood. And because he doesn't trust the Levites, he removes them from his kingdom. So all the Levites go down south and are now in the southern kingdom. And anybody else who just wants to be a priest can be a priest of this invented religion. Now he has an invented priesthood. This is all out of his mind, and he is out of his mind. <coughs> um, so you now have two kings in a divided kingdom, tempted to choose sides. They're fighting each other, okay? <coughs> Jeroboam, I think, is going to become more aggressive, and Rehoboam has to build a lot of fortified cities. Okay, He knows I'm not supposed to go and fight against my relatives. Jeroboam, I don't think, knows that, but Rehoboam has learned that, at least. Surely there's a good side here and a bad side, right? You've got two sides. They're at odds with one another. One of them must be good and one of them must be bad, right? No. Nope. In this case, in this case, <coughs> Scripture judges both sides to be bad, and their sins are somewhat similar. <coughs> so with Jeroboam, we remember uh, he interacts with the man of God who comes up and who testifies against this altar at Bethel, and says, "Yeah, First Kings 15." Um, altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. Hundreds of years before Josiah comes on the scene. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you, and there'll be a sign this day. The altar will be split apart, the ashes poured out. Jeroboam's there to hear this. And he stretches out his hand and says, seize him, and his hand withers. And the altar splits apart and the ashes fall out. <clears throat> so he pleads with the man of God, uh, heal me, please. And he does. And then he says something that's just classic. This is, this is classic human sinfulness. King said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Here's a man who thinks everything's up for sale. Now, this man's not up for sale. This man is going to be, this man of God is going to be a man deceived, but he's not up for sale and says, I don't, I don't care for half your kingdom. Okay? Same sort of spirit here as Simon the magician. He sees the apostles give the Holy Spirit, hey, let me pay you something so that I can do that as well. He thinks it's up for sale. It's not up for sale. <clears throat> um, Ahijah, he speaks to one more time uh, because his son has fallen ill. So he knows enough. When things are really desperate, he knows who the true man of God is and knows to consult with him. 
You ever met people like that? They're unbelievers, and yet in a desperate circumstance, they go and they find Christians to talk to for some reason. Same thing happens here, and what is said? Very quickly, I'm not going to read all of it. Thus says Ahijah tells Jeroboam's wife, uh, because the son is ill, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader, tore the kingdom away, gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David. <clears throat> you have done more evil than all who are before you, gone made for yourself other gods, molten images to provoke me to anger, cast me behind your back. I am therefore bringing such calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, bond or free in Israel. I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam. And eventually you're going to go into captivity. Your son's going to die. Because I did find something good in him. So I'm going to remove him from this situation. So the Lord judges Jeroboam as bad. How about Rehoboam? Okay, Rehoboam has three years of faithfulness. He rules 17, three years of faithfulness, builds cities, disperses his sons as princes, and then departs from the Lord. King of Egypt comes against him. There's discipline. There's some measure of repentance but the clear, if you read the book of King, First Kings, the clear judgment is he was a bad king. His son does bad, just like his father, not like David. So you have two sides. It's not, let's choose which one's good, which one's bad. They're fighting each other, but they're both judged by Scripture as bad. <clears throat> And that is all I'm going to have time for. Um, so we will close there. Any comments or questions in closing? Yes. Since ten tribes are in the north and one tribe is in the south, where's the twelve tribes? Well, they, the, <coughs> Judah was a given. Benjamin is with uh, Judah. And then, of course, you have the Levites, um, Joseph's tribe being split into two. So you have the Levites, you have Benjamin, you have Judah in the south. You also have other Israelites from the northern tribes who have decided at this time, we're going to be where the true worship is. Okay, so it's not a it's not a strict division, but Second Chronicles talks about there were other people who went south. And did the seven tribes worship in Jerusalem? Or yeah. No, no, because it wasn't. It was right at the northern edge of the southern. Yeah. So the problem was the northern tribe. <clears throat> they didn't want them to have to. They didn't want to start a passport and visa system, I guess, of, <laughs> for the annual pilgrimages of being able to go into the south. That seemed way too risky for him. He had God's promises. It wouldn't have happened. He would have survived, but he didn't trust. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would learn from these things. 
learn first and foremost, Lord, to be teachable and to be trusting of what you have promised, Lord. We see such an example of that in David, and we know that that's not perfect. We see the perfect example in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who would go to the cross, Lord, trusting in that eternal covenant that had been made so that he would have a people bought in this very way, Lord. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you that he did not come up with his own words, but every word he spoke was the word, Heavenly Father, that you gave him. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who reminds us of the words of Christ, who also is not um, inventing his own, but taking from what is Christ's and giving it to us. We thank you, most harmonious Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May you be worshipped in this place this morning. We pray these things in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.